Hello and welcome back to The Latest. In this episode, me and Astrid are interviewing Hilary Benn, the MP for Leeds. We chat about how he came to be an MP, how he's approaching the spiking cases and the recent rise in them, his views on climate change and how he feels about the current situation in leadership of the Labour and Conservative Party. Thank you so much for Hil- to Hilary Benn for chatting to us and giving us so much of his time. It was so interesting to hear. Um, so enjoy. I grew up in a household where we talked about what was going on in the world um, while we were eating. Um, my my father, as you may be aware, was a member of parliament. So I grew up along with my siblings with an interest in what was going on. Uh, when I was 10, I wanted to be a firefighter because my grandfather had taken me to a display by the London County Council Fire Brigade, which I thought was pretty impressive. But when that wore off, yeah, I suppose being an elected representative, being a public servant was what I wanted to do. I was a councillor for 20 years in, in West London, and I was elected as the MP for Leeds Central in a by-election in 1999. Yeah, and then I served in the Labour government, the Labour cabinet, under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. In opposition, I was um, shadow leader of the House of Commons, shadow community secretary, then shadow foreign secretary, and then I chaired the Brexit Select Committee for four and a bit years. Um, yes, I'm now I'm now a backbencher, but I'm chairing something called the UK Trade and Business Commission, which is trying to scrutinise Britain's trading relationships with both the EU and the rest of the world. So you've been an MP for Leeds for a long time now. Um, yeah. yeah. What would you say your current priority is uh, regarding Leeds? Oh, I think the, the biggest single priority remains what it was when I was first elected, which is to try and overcome the gap between rich and poor, those who have opportunity and those who don't. Leeds is overall a very successful city, seen a lot of investment. There are a lot of jobs being created, but not all Leeds's citizens are able to participate in that. We In Leeds Central, one in three children grow up in absolute poverty. We're in the sixth richest country in the world one in three children. The food banks are expecting their busiest winter. I visited the Leeds South and East Food Bank at their warehouse that they moved into earlier in the year about a month ago. And they said, we're stocking up because bills are rising, gas prices are increasing, uh, the universal credit cut, taking away the 20 pounds a week that people had had during the course of the pandemic made such a difference to families. One woman wrote to me and said, it may not seem like a a lot, but it's a lifeline. And now that's been taken away and a lot of people will be struggling. And the thing about universal credit, because 40% of the people who get universal credit are working. And what that reveals is the problem of in-work poverty in our society. You know, Boris Johnson says, well, um, uh, trying to explain the cut in universal credit, well, people should move into work. 40% of people in receipt of that are already in work, Prime Minister. But what you don't seem to understand is people work a job and it isn't enough to look after their family or they work two jobs. The importance of universal credit is a sign that wages are too low for people at the the lower end of the spectrum. Uh, And that's why we need uh, a higher minimum wage, something that the the last Labour government introduced. We didn't have a a statutory minimum wage in Britain 
prior to the, the 97 to 2010 Labour government. How do you feel about um, working conditions and minimum wage going into winter on the back of the pandemic? Obviously, we might see an increase in cases. Is this going to be a problem for you know, our communities in Leeds? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is, and that's a really important question because, uh, I mean, as it so happens, I've been uh, isolating at home, having tested positive for COVID. But if you think of people who, if they don't go to work, are not going to get paid, and if they're not paid, they can't feed their family, they can't pay the bills, and unless you're getting decent financial support, uh, there is some, but it's not enough, then there's no doubt that that's one of the reasons why people who may have symptoms don't get tested because they've got to go to work, or even if they have know that they've got COVID, they have to go to work. And I mean, that has really brought home the, the different choices that people have got have in life depending on what their income is what the security of that income is secondly the covid is not over by a long chalk and we've been running at 40,000 new cases a day you just have to say that again that is a lot um now recently in leeds we've had a higher rate than the national but it's come down in the last week and a half um, the, the great saving grace in all of this is vaccination, because if you compare how we look at the disease now, when it was very new, doctors didn't quite understand what they were dealing with. People, some people were getting very sick and dying in large numbers. And because of the astonishing achievement of the scientists, what, what an extraordinary thing that they have done, which has given us the vaccine. And then in the last two days, we've seen reported two different drugs, one um, produced by Merck, Sharp and Dome and the other by Pfizer, both of which in trials have been shown to reduce the incidence of severe illness and death. And so we're in a different position because although the cases are very high, if you look at the deaths and the hospitalizations, they are much, much lower than they were in the first <clears throat> wave of the epidemic. And, you know, the, the public health message remains to all of us of all ages, get vaccinated. Because I'm, I've had people write to me and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm in my 20s. I don't really have to worry about it. Um, no, the evidence is that younger people don't get it uh, seriously and badly, although some do and, and get long COVID. But if you've got it, you might give it to someone else, your mum, your dad, your grandparents, your neighbours. So I think we all have a responsibility for the sake of society as a whole to take all of the steps that we can to protect ourselves and those we love. And that includes getting vaccinated. It includes wearing masks when we're out and about. And for the life of me, I do not understand why the government uh, hasn't made the wearing of masks in certain circumstances mandatory. Um, um, so can I just interrupt? Yeah, you go on. Just ask. Um, obviously, um, we saw at COP twenty six, like you just said, people not wearing masks. Boris Johnson yeah. wasn't wearing a mask, sat next to David Attenborough. And I just want to ask your opinion: What signal do you think that image sends to the world about our about the UK's commitment to climate change and our approach to the pandemic? Well, look, that's a signal sent by the the Prime Minister, and uh, I mean, when I'm out and about, there are quite a few people 
at wearing masks. There's been a lot of debate about the House of Commons. If you went back a month, you would see everyone on the Labour, the Lib Dem, the SNP benches wearing a mask when they're in the chamber because you are cheek by jowl. Uh, at that point, there were very few Conservatives wearing masks. The number has increased as people have made the point and the message has got across. You know, you, you need to be doing things that will um, uh, that will protect others. And it, we, we've all got an obligation to play our part. But I mean, Britain as a whole, we've had obviously a high number of cases and deaths, but we've also had a, a very effective vaccination programme. Uh, the, the vaccines are there. It's persuading everyone who hasn't had a vaccine to get one. Speak of injections. Yeah, well, talking about spiking. Yeah, yeah spiking. Yeah, well, an okay. issue that um, a lot of people are talking about at the moment, especially yeah. students. Uh, there was the Safe Night Life Summit last night that you were yep. in attendance of. Do you think you could just summarise for us what that was about, what was said there, and maybe what your approach is and what you're hoping to do to combat spiking? Well, I think it was a very important discussion. Um, my colleague Alex Sobel organised it. Tracy Brabin, the mayor of West Yorkshire, was there. The police were there, representatives of uh, clubs and others with an interest. I've had a number of constituents, as you know, contact me expressing their concern, as has Alex. Um, there's been the one, as far as I'm aware, the one reported case of spiking by injection in Leeds. There have been other cases reported around the country. Um, I think the first thing is to raise awareness of this. Now, obviously, sp spiking of drinks, not by injection, um, sadly, has been a feature of, uh, of nights out for quite uh, some time. It is a criminal offence. I mean, let's just be clear about it. It is a criminal offence. And why anyone will want to do that, uh, frankly, I simply don't understand. But catching people in the act is quite uh, difficult. I was very impressed with the response of the police on the call yesterday because they are obviously taking it very seriously with the measures that they've put in place. I was impressed that they have bought some testing kits out of their own resources. Um, the question is, how can those be effectively used in clubs? How do you know for sure whether you're feeling unwell because you've been spiked as opposed to um, something else? Um, how do clubs know whether someone who's clearly not right has been spiked or might have had a bit too much to drink. I think the clubs had a fair point that they raised on the call. We do, a lot of clubs do search, but what are we looking for? You might come across a syringe and the only, I mean, the only legitimate reason I can think of where you might be bringing a syringe into a club is if you're an, a diabetic and you need to have an injection. When it comes to vials of liquids, how is a club bouncer going to know? What, 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 what am I looking at here? Is this, is this water? Is this, is this uh, something else? So, you know, vigilance and awareness, all sorts of things inside clubs like drinks covers and um, getting someone else to look after your drink if you go to the loo, all of those kind of practical steps. But I do think that obviously being able to catch those responsible and enabling them to face the full force of the law if the evidence is there and they're convicted in a court, would send a very powerful message to anyone who's doing this. There is a serious consequence because it's it's an offence to do it and has been since a piece of legislation in 1861. 
uh, it was worded, I think, in those days as administering a noxious substance. In other words, the, it's, it's not that we're lacking the law. It is an offence. Uh, you've got to catch people in the act. You've got to have the evidence. <clears throat> and I hope it's going to begin a discussion. We agreed that there would be a follow up in um, two or three months to see how everybody was getting on. And I do think that the, the Girls' Night in Initiative, which was launched, did send a very powerful message to uh, the clubs um, who don't want, you know, they're appalled about this as anybody else to take it seriously. And I think the, the police in Leeds, judging by last night, clearly have. And I, I applaud them for that because it's not necessary the story you hear in other parts of the country when girls and women have been talking about their experience. Yeah, so um, just on that as well, like with what, in regards to wider women's safety, um, Woodhouse Moor uh, is, you know, in sort of such a key student area. Um, I think there's been quite a few calls for lighting uh, in that park. Is that something you're looking into? Or something That's something consider? I have taken up in the past with the council because people have made representations to me. I don't know, I don't know what the, whether you're aware of any incidents that have taken place, but it's, look, basically it's about perceptions of safety. If you have a choice between walking in a lighted area and walking in an unlighted area, then most people are going to take the lighted area because we, we feel safer in those um, circumstances. And um, I don't know if it's a campaign that you are running, but it's something that I will take up with the council uh, again because it's been an issue for quite some time. Another big um, issue that I just wanted to raise in regard to student lifestyles um, is um, obviously online learning during the pandemic last year. Yeah. 100% um, for the University of Leeds was online and myself and Izzy included, although we're back in university um, campus, we're still in a sense of blended learning where we've got seminars in person but online lectures and many universities around the country are still adopting this policy. Um, so would you support the reduction of university fees um, to compensate for the lack of resources that we experienced during the pandemic? That's a really difficult question because universities have the same costs. They're still employing staff, they're still employing lecturers, they've still got buildings, they've got to heat them, they've got um, debts to service. So there's a practical question and I, I can understand why universities say, well, if we reduce the fees, we reduce the income, our costs are the same, what else are we going to cut in order to be able to do that? But I completely understand that the experience is, is not the same. Uh, firstly, it's interesting you say that your seminars are in person, but the lectures aren't. I suppose it goes right back to your opening or second question about COVID. Obviously, yeah. if you're crowded in a lecture room, then there is a, for a well, 45 minutes, an hour, however long it is, there's a risk of transmission. If you can impart the information, um, not quite in the same way in terms of the experience, but hearing the lecturer uh, speak and do that by Zoom. Question, is that a contribution to trying to prevent the spread of COVID? And I think well, there's a... I mean, I think it has to be said that this was, you know, a, go a government decision as well, the late return to university students above yeah. schools. It felt like, I definitely felt with the late return of universities that, 
university students were just being forgotten about. And you have to consider schools are back in normal 24-7. There's in-person teaching in schools. Why are universities still being, you know, um, just just forgotten about? So I think that leads to my next question. Why, why do you think university students are being treated with, um, you know, less important than other um, educational systems around the country? I think throughout a lot of the pandemic, it did feel like university students were the last to be mentioned and maybe if it at all really um with regards to what we were supposed to be doing where we were supposed to be and how uh we were going to like traverse through the pandemic yeah look, look, i think that that is a fair point in terms of communication and i've i have been contacted by lots and lots of, of students in leeds during the course of the pandemic raising these questions to do with uh, rent and not being able to occupy accommodation and the fees issue that you raised and the form of learning i think it's all about trying to strike a balance and for schools right it's been really difficult because remote learning for schools now for school children worked for some but not for others that's why you've got to look at each set of circumstances you know on their own merits and you're balancing risk and of course if um, large-scale events take place where well, a lecture isn't quite a large-scale event and then there's a huge outbreak and someone gets seriously ill and people say well why did you do that because you didn't need to you could have done it online I think it's a to be honest I think it's a different a, a different judgment but I think the lack of communication the lack of certainty about what was going to happen uh, undoubtedly has contributed to the feeling that you've both expressed which I'm well aware of that universities had been forgotten and and university students had been forgotten in the way in which this had been handled can i ask um when you're creating your policies within your constituency how much do you consider the well-being and social importance of students um in as part of leeds as a as a core of leeds well the universities and the students who attend the universities you know are really really important to the the life of the city uh, the character of the city to the economy of the city you know when i talk to taxi drivers and ask how's business they'll say well the students have gone home so now there's just one very practical example of the contribution that you make and there was a report published recently looking at the economic contribution of universities to cities uh, up and down uh, the country and obviously Leeds figured very prominently because of the number of students uh, that we have got so students are a really important part of my constituency um, there are moments when you get some difficulties so at a, a call earlier today I was talking about the very very small number of students who insist on playing music or having street parties late at night and early in the morning to the disturbance of their neighbours there's a lot of discussion being going on between the council and the universities about how we tackle this problem because i would say until you have experienced noise nuisance that prevents you from sleeping when you've got to go to work the next day it's quite hard to understand what it does to you i just i highlight that because it's a teeny minority of students but i think it's very important to get the message out you are living in a community you have neighbors they do need to get up in the morning to go to work and they need to be able to sleep.
How do you think then that um, you could better communicate with students to kind of get this message across? Because I feel like maybe our gen th those people aren't as connected with politics or yeah, policies that, that they um, or aware well, of other communities like that so they could better, you know, integrate themselves. Well, I would look if we're talking about noise, if, if we're just focusing on noise nuisance, I would have thought it was pretty darn obvious. But maybe wider in terms of, you know, engagement in the community and ensuring that, you know, I think maybe certain residents do see students as a nuisance, however, do live here for, a, you know, four or five years, sometimes more. So how to ensure that students are engaged in that community and not seen as this nuisance, but actually part of the, the lifeblood of Leeds, especially certain parts of it? Well, there, I mean, there are obviously community organisations uh, in different parts of the city and um, I'm sure they'd welcome students participating, but, but students do a lot already. Um, also earlier today, I was on a Zoom call for the annual meeting of Caring Together in Woodhouse and Little London, which is a voluntary organisation that works to support older people. And over the years, many students from university have volunteered with them at the Christmas party uh, when they ran a Silver Surfer programme. It was students who were helping to teach the the members of caring together you know uh, if they weren't familiar with using a computer or email or um, or google or search engines and I, I see that time and time again and it's important to get that story across uh, to the community it's about being good neighbors to the people that you live alongside whether you're going to be there for you know nine more months because and then you're off somewhere else although quite a few students having studied in Leeds then choose to stay in Leeds and to live because it's a fabulous city it's a wonderful city with lots going on and um, students along with everybody else contributes an enormous amount to it I think you can never underestimate it's been a theme of the last uh, 15 minutes or so of the discussion the importance of good communication yeah I mean t having a, a story to tell positive and if there's a problem being honest about what the problem is what's being done to try and fix it because it's the the absence of information or knowledge or feeling that no one's paying any attention that is most difficult whereas if you're plugged in you know who to go to and they will say well this is what we're going to do and they do it and we can tackle that but we can't sort that out yet or this is the reason why there's a problem or this is what we've achieved i think that builds community confidence i've seen that over the the years as an elected representative where you build links with different agencies the council the street cleaning the police and others and you've you've got means of talking to them you find a community that's much more at ease with itself than one where the feeling is there's barriers or we're not being listened to or we can't get anything done obviously we're very sad to hear about the death of um david amos a few weeks yes. ago um and this isn't the first time sadly that an mp has been killed obviously joe cox um um as an mp how do how do you feel about your you know your everyday safety now that something like this has happened well it caught of course it causes us all of us as mp and mp staff don't forget mp staff yeah. because they witnessed what happened to David Amos and to Joe Cox. And my colleague Stephen Timms was stabbed and survived. And Nigel Jones, a Lib Dem MP, was attacked by a man with a samurai sword in his surgery. Uh, Nigel survived with quite serious injuries. His assistant was killed. 
it is a risk and it's an attack. It's an attack on our democracy because in all of those cases, what was the Member of Parliament doing? Doing their job, serving their constituents, being available to help. That's such an important part of what I do as an MP, all of us do as uh, MPs. And as you can imagine, there's been a great deal of discussion about how we manage and balance the risk. We're not the only public service workers who are at risk. You think of attacks on transport staff or people working in our hospitals or social workers or the police. Uh, these are all, all public servants who are doing a job on behalf of our community. But it's a terrible, it's the most terrible, terrible thing because, you know, his family waved him goodbye in the morning and he never came back and he was just doing his job. And he was a, he was a lovely man. And, and, and all of those tributes, if there's any comfort to, to his family, the, the outpouring of affection and the tributes, and it was true, he, he, ha he always had a smile on his face, is a true reflection of the person who was. And he was so proud of the community he represented, and he regarded that as the single most important thing he did as an MP, and isn't that what we want? Um, do you think that, sadly, terrorism might be something we have to start worrying again more about in this country obviously it's been quite a long time since we've had a serious attack um thinking about london bridge um could are there any implications with brexit that we need to consider in, in light of terrorism i'm afraid the threat is ever present um and not just from uh, islamist extremism which let's be honest about it but also far-right extremism um, look at the man who killed Joe Cox. And I think it's important that we recognise and pay tribute to the really hard work of our security services, the police and MI5, because their work, their public service job is to work day and night to try and identify who is a threat and catching them before they can do anything. And it's it's really, really important work well obviously this week has been cop 26 as well yes of course yes um what do you think about uh in leeds and leeds city center um is the council doing enough to combat climate change is there anything you're looking to implement to combat climate change here in leeds well cop let's start with cop this is a very important moment for the world what are they trying to do at cop they are trying to get commitments from countries that will mean those countries can get to a net zero carbon future. It, it's, it's literally a question of going around the table saying, okay, what are you prepared to commit to? What are you going to do about coal or 100% renewable electricity or oil and gas? And that is hugely important because you can add them all up. And the scientists, as indeed they've said in the last couple of days, if all the countries do what they've promised, then we're heading for whatever it is. 1.8 degrees or two and a half degrees uh, above pre-industrial levels and at that moment the world has to say to itself can we live with that well two and a bit degrees i really wouldn't go there look at what's happening to the climate at the moment look at it look at the people who are living in places where you get 50 degree heat in the summer and there's a fundamental truth here that we all need to recognize. In the end, if it becomes impossible to live where you were born and brought up, 
either because it's 50 degrees in the summer and you just can't survive, or there's too much rain and you're flooded out, or sea level rises, or there's not enough rain and there's a drought, people will not stay there. They will do what human beings have done since the dawn of time, which is to move, and they will be moving somewhere else. So this is the ultimate expression of our interdependence as human beings, because if we don't all play our part, we are all going to feel the consequences of a failure to deal uh, with dangerous climate change. That's the first part. The second part, and it comes to your question, not just about Leeds, but about the government, is behind every commitment that a government makes, there has to be a credible plan in that country for getting down to net zero. Now, I know there is this debate about imported emissions, products we buy from other countries. I understand the argument, but ultimately, as a, as a member of parliament, I don't control how China chooses to produce its goods that it sells to us. So there's a debate about carbon border adjustments, basically sticking a tax on stuff coming in. The European Union's debating that. There'll be a big question for Britain as to whether we're going to mirror their scheme or have our own. Domestically, um, well, what's the task? Uh, well, well, let's look at the practicalities, because this is now all about practicalities. There are 22 million homes in this country that have gas for central heating and cooking. Eventually, the gas is not going to flow through those pipes anymore. Question, how are we going to heat our homes when we can't use our gas boiler anymore? What are the two technologies on the table? One is heat pumps. They exist. But since we're talking about leads, I have many constituents who have trouble paying the gas bill. They don't have six, 10, 12, 15,000 pounds to buy a heat pump. So if we're going to make the transition, how is that going to happen? And the government's announced in its um, strategy published recently, uh, 5,000 pound grants for heat pumps. I think it's 30,000 homes a year, 30,000 homes a year versus 22 million homes. Well, you can do the maths. It's way, way, way short of what is required. So that's the one technological option. The other is hydrogen. Uh, I, I never thought when I became an MP, I'd be talking about boilers, but climate change is not, it's the doing of it. It's the practicality. It's the plan. And this is really where we should be focusing all of our energy, because as you replace those boilers and hydrogen is the alternative, hydrogen boilers are being developed. The problem, the biggest practical problem, apart from the safety of doing that, is can you produce enough hydrogen to replace natural gas? Now, the only way to produce the hydrogen to replace natural gas in a way that is uh, zero CO2 is to use electrolysis using renewable electricity. It's about all of these things. How quickly can we produce enough green hydrogen, it's called? But anyway, we're going to need a vast increase in renewable electricity because we're going to be using electricity in future to power heat pumps or indeed to make hydrogen because we won't be burning gas. We're going to be using electricity to charge our cars. Energy storage is a big question for this country. When the wind blows, it's great. There's plenty of electricity. When the wind isn't blowing and we all put on the kettle, you need power fast. How do we do that at the moment? Nuclear gas. How can you store renewable electricity, well, you can either stick it in a battery or you can turn it into hydrogen. And when you need the power, you burn the hydrogen to generate the electricity. There's a debate about nuclear. Some people are arguing for local nuclear power stations, much, much smaller ones, because in operation, 
a nuclear power is more or less zero carbon and it's better than gas but it's not just about it's not just about commitment the relentless questions should be where is your plan can i um, briefly yeah. ask position, your your own position and opinion on um, the current leadership of the labor party i think Keir Starmer is doing a, a terrific job i supported him what is our task we had our worst election defeat in 2019 since the 1930s in terms of the number of seats mm. i have i've been campaigning for the labor party for a very 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 long time for my sins i have never fought an election where i've knocked on so many doors and people have said i've always voted labor but and the 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 electors who under our system are the ones who determine whether the result goes this way or that way um uh, did not want to elect a labor government and what is the task in politics the 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 first and fundamental task for labor is to be to to seek to be a party of government if i wanted to join a debating society when i was 17 years of age which is when i became a labor party member i could have joined a debating society you can discuss the state of the world pass resolutions everything's fine does anything change you can change out, outside government look at what was forced on the government this week over the uh, owen patterson um scandal i mean oh, words almost fail me that the government was so stupid as to think that they could get away with this to be able to change people's lives to be able to introduce a minimum wage to be able to put the climate change act on the statute book I was the cabinet minister who introduced the Climate Change Act, the first piece of climate change legislation in the world to introduce civil partnerships, to create the Sure Start programme, um, to get rid of outside toilets, a long list of achievements of the last Labour government. You have to win. And to win, you have to win people's trust and confidence. And in one sense, if you can't pass the test of winning trust and confidence, it doesn't matter what your policies are, because if people don't trust you and they don't have confidence in you, you're not going to win. So it's a it's a it's a long, hard haul. But I think Keir is doing a great job. He's got a fantastic team around him. But in the end, the voters will decide, you know. Yeah. So you mentioned Owen Patterson there. Do you think then that, you know, the public have lost this trust and support you're mentioning in the in the Conservatives, in Boris Johnson? Well, we will have to see, but it was it, it was a shocking and monumentally stupid thing to do. Be because it what did it look like? It looked like well, sleaze corruption. Because it's all very well, and and there's a debate to be had about the processes for investigating MPs. But question: what, Why is it that you've only decided you want to change review the system when one of your own has been found guilty of an egregious breach of the rules? That's the question. And the answer, uh, well, it's not really about that and he'll still be considered and so on. It just didn't wash with anybody. To watch Jacob Rees-Mogg get up on the Thursday morning in the comments and say, he said, I think the problem is that the individual case and the broader issue have become conflated and we need to separate them again. Well, excuse me, the motion that conflated them was the one that Boris Johnson ordered his MPs the previous day to vote for. And then he realized, oh, uh, this is not this is not working. We're getting a lot of criticism. Labour and the other parties are not going to participate. So this new committee can't go ahead. Um, I don't know what they were thinking of, but it is damaging. Um, it is highly damaging to see this government 
think that they can have one set of rules apply to them and a different set of rules apply to everyone else. And it's not the first time. Look at Matt Hancock, look at Dominic Cummings. You know, they've got form on this. Now, the public will have to decide, is this enough for them to say, we really don't like this uh, government and we'd like to see something different. I hope people do. But as ever, it's the public in the end to decide. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for talking to us today. It's honestly been so great um, to hear your opinions and answer all our questions. And um, we just would like to finish with one final question, which is, have you ever been given a piece of life-changing advice or any advice yourself that you would like to share with us today? Oh, crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, I was talking to a year four class, primary school in South Leeds and trying to explain what I did and so on. They've got a new school slogan. Uh, it's something like believe, aspire, achieve, which I thought was great. And there's a very, very old saying that we're all familiar with, but I think is extremely good advice in life. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. It's the story of my political life. The first time I stood for a as a councillor, I lost. The first two times I stood as a member of parliament, I lost. And, you know, getting the opportunity to do what you really want to do takes a lot of hard work and persistence. So never give up, never give up. Um, and I think that's important. And the, the other bit of advice, it was a saying of my grandfather's. Um, and he said, never wrestle with a chimney sweep. Now, in a political context, what he meant by that was just because your opponent is covered in soot uh, or mire or worse, that is absolutely no reason to get down in the gutter with them. In other words, it was, a, it was him expressing his, his view about the way in which one should conduct oneself as a as a uh, politician and I, I I've tried to do that argue the issue um, and argue the issue very very forcefully but don't get personal because people have different views and you you can respect someone with whom you profoundly disagree and I think our politics would be a lot better if we did this Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Latest and thank you again for Hillary, to Hillary for giving us so much of his time. Make sure you subscribe and come back next week for another episode.